0: The library at the National Palace of Mafra looks like the kind of library where something magical could happen at any given moment. Think long hallways, bookshelves lining the walls, all the way up to these arched ceilings. It's an old library that's part of an old palace built in the 1700s. And its books are even older. There are more than 35,000 volumes here, including what's considered the first encyclopedia, a whole collection of books that were forbidden during the Inquisition, and even Incunabula, books that were printed before the 16th century. The collections here are extraordinarily rare, but the books aren't the only unusual things about this library. At the end of the day, the lights are turned off, the building closes, and out come the winged librarians of the night. I'm Abby Peralt, and this is Atlas Obscura, a daily celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're heading to Mafra, Portugal, about 25 miles northwest of Lisbon, where we'll meet the librarian who looks after these books by day and the bats that do so by night. After this.
1: If you're looking for a place along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com.
2: Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends.
3: For me, the the library is all together the books. I have one that I love, it's um, about cartography, it's from the 16th century.
0: That's Teresa Amaral, she's a librarian at the National Palace of Mafra.
3: I have lots of things to do, because it's not a normal library.
0: It's definitely not a normal library. It's a historical library, and maybe one of the most important in Western Europe. And Teresa is kind of like the protector of this rare collection.
3: I have a big, big preoccupation about the conservation of the books.
0: A lot goes into protecting these volumes. Teresa and her team have to monitor the conditions of the library to make sure the books don't crack or mold.
3: I must know How is the temperature? How is the humidity? Every month, I go all over the library to see if there are any modifications about humidity or temperature.
0: And there's another part of caring for these super delicate books that's a little unexpected. Teresa says it's actually really important to engage with them. They want to be touched. If we don't touch a book, what
3: is the book? Nothing. The books must breathe. The circulation of the hair is very, very important for the books.
0: Teresa and her team spend a lot of time making their way through the long halls of the library, carefully cracking open a book and leafing through the old pages. At the end of the day, she says, the library closes. The phones stop ringing, folks go home, and it reaches a new level of quiet. And that's when the night shift takes over.
3: It's possible to see them flying. Yes, they fly so. Very, very fast.
0: The Mafra library bats.
3: We don't know all the bats came to the library. We don't know. But they are very, very small. They are about uh,
0: five centimeters. They're tiny. Five centimeters is a little less than the length of my thumb. They are small, so few. No problem. Majestic old libraries, it turns out, are great places to be if you're a bat.
4: Huge galleries, behind all those uh, uh, shelves full of books, they can find crevices and small places to hide. So this is perfect almost no noise, because libraries are are quiet. (laughs) And so for them, it's perfect quiet during the day and quiet during the night. My name is Hugo Rebelo. Uh, I work at the University of Porto uh, in Portugal. That's the second largest city. And uh, over the last decades, I've been mainly working and researching uh, on bats, bat conservation.
0: Hugo and his team have spent some time studying and recording library bats. Not just the ones in Mafra, but also a bit farther north at another library, at the University of Coimbra. Both libraries were built around the same time, and they both have these massive collections of old books.
4: And of both of them, they take care of their bats. They don't try to, to expel them or kill them, like uh, all over the world, all over the places.
0: That's been an intentional choice. The bats, they're welcome here. And that's because there's something else, something even less visible than the bats, living in these libraries, something that could put these books at risk.
4: Because of the presence of that amount of paper that books possess, there's a lot of bookworms that the name says it all. It's an insect that pests and feeds on paper.
0: Stopping these insects from gnawing through history is actually a huge part of preservation
4: bats seem to be providing this service cost-free. No wages, no strikes, 24-7. It's a brilliant employee to have.
0: Now, if this is starting to sound a little like that nursery rhyme about the lady who swallowed a fly and then swallowed a spider to swallow the fly, so on, don't worry, no one is eating the bats. Hugo says that people who have worked at MAFRA and Coimbra have, for centuries, kind of empirically understood their value and, and let them be.
4: Why have, throughout ages, libraries keep on this routine? it just a matter of culture, of keeping up what the boss says, or do they believe on what they are doing? And I believe that they believe. <laughs> they believe that the number of uh, damaged books would decrease.
0: For a long time, no one had really dug into the science of what was happening in the library. That's what Ugo and his team did.
4: We put some uh, ultrasound detectors inside the library.
0: Those detectors let them kind of eavesdrop on the noises the bats make throughout the night. Noises that aren't otherwise audible to the human ear. The human translation sounds like the buzzes and chirps at the beginning of this episode. And if you were to listen in on the chorus... In the library in Mafra, you might hear a few different voices chiming in.
4: There are three, at least three species. Uh, one is the pipistrelle. It's by far the most uh, common bat over Europe.
0: They also found evidence of the serotine bat and the gray, long-eared bat, which Ugo calls a moth specialist.
4: Those sounds allow us to identify the species, but also have some hints on bat behavior. And we have uh, what we call the feeding buzzes.
0: Feeding buzzes are specific sounds these bats emit as they're hunting.
4: So they were feeding inside. This is evidence.
0: This, along with what they found in samples they took of bat droppings, was confirmation that the bats were eating a lot of moths in the library. Though Ugo says it's likely they're also eating outside of the library too.
4: It's the breakfast or the the late snack when they go home. It's bats has to eat more or less half its weight every night. So this is a lot of insects. Try to do this uh, parallel with humans and imagine the amount of pizza you had to eat a single night.
0: There's a lot that we still don't know about these bats. We don't know exactly how many there are or where specifically in the library they roost. But here's what we do know. These libraries have never had to use pesticides or any kind of chemical treatment to protect the books from an insect outbreak.
4: Even where the very controlled uh, conditions of modern libraries, uh, this is not (laughs) bulletproof. And every so often nature finds its way through and... then people have to intervene uh, either through chemicals or smoking the place out or whatever. But when you put these harmful chemicals, whatever the context, it's never good. (laughs) Not good for the environment, but it's not good for people, for how else. One way or the other, this will will pay the bill in the end. Sorry, I'm also an environmentalist. (laughs) This raises the question... Why aren't other libraries full of bats, isn't <laughs> it?
0: You might be thinking, other libraries aren't full of bats because bats can sometimes carry viruses that are deadly to humans. And, of course, there's some truth to that. And for many reasons, we are not recommending anyone go out and try to acquire a bat to protect their personal book collection. But Ugo says that's never been an issue at these libraries. Over hundreds of years, there have been no known cases of diseases like rabies among library staff. He told me that rabid bats tend to lose their ability to fly. So it's more common to have a rabid bat fall on you than bite you. And the demonic, biting rabid bat, he says, is more common in Hollywood than in reality. Bats play a different role in real life than they do on TV. And in Mafra, librarians like Teresa and biologists like Hugo are bringing that to the fore. The library even proudly displays a few taxidermied former resident bats in a glass case. We have a big battle
3: because some years ago, the the bats, it's not a good animal for the people. People don't like bats some years ago. They think they are not good and so on. Sometimes in summer, We make, in the palace, the Night of the Bats.
0: The Night of the Bats. It's actually something that's been happening across Europe for the past several decades. And at MAFRA, scientists and community members get together at the palace on summer nights to talk bats, spend the evening among them, and even use those ultrasound detectors to show people what they sound like. And it's maybe more important now than ever as climate change is really starting to mess with the bat hibernation patterns in places like Portugal.
4: And uh, when we do this, we try to engage people on the bat values of the library and the ecosystem services they provide. But we also grab the opportunity to collect data. We are scientists. (laughs) And if there's a dead bat in there, we'll take him. In the 1990s, when I started doing this, the people that mainly appeared were mainly people associated to subcultures like (laughs) goths, heavy metalers, (laughs) and stuff like that.
0: But now, Ugo says that's changing. It's not just scientists and people who are into heavy metal who are showing up for the bats. It's a lot of families and kids, too. Now, he says... Crowds of people come to Mafra and wait in line to be outfitted in headlamps and traipse through the surrounding forest and down the dark corridors of the library after nightfall, hoping to catch a glimpse of the bats at work, swooping through the halls, eating half their weight in moths, protecting the books.
4: Whoever is in Portugal should go there. It's quite, I don't know if you like libraries, this is a personal thing, but the smell of the old books is unique. Wow, you feel history, you feel something that shivers in you. Together with environment and bats, all of these making a story on history. It's, it's brilliant. Those bat nights are brilliant.
0: Thank you so much to Teresa Amaral and also to Ugo Rebello who gave us this very cool recording of feeding buzzes you're listening to right now. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes Doug Baldinger Chris Naka Camille Stanley Sarah Wyman
1: John Delore Dylan Therese, Peter Clowney
0: Our technical director is
1: Casey Holford
0: Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tindall This episode was mixed by
1: Luce Fleming.
0: I'm Abby Peralt. Thanks for joining me.
1: Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure they are always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln